Good to see you guys. Happy New Year. First Sunday of 2024. Wow. Cheers. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a less than resounding yay from the crowd. I noticed that. How about this one? Thank God 23 is over. Okay. Thank God. You know, here's what's crazy. I was talking with Joe this morning and I said, you guys realize like that put some things in perspective. COVID hit four years ago now. Right. You know, isn't that amazing that just, whew, somebody was saying something about time and I'm like, I've lost all concept of time anymore in my life. Just that's how my life seems to be. I'm curious, how many of you would say like in your life you moved a lot? Anybody say I moved a ton? Okay. I want to know what is a ton? Like who would say that like, let's talk this way, like beyond houses, because houses, you know, that can be in the same city. How many different cities have you lived in? Who thinks they have the most? Five cities there? Oh, Tim's going to take, how many did you say? Luke McDonald over here says two. So I think he's, he's safe. Otumwa and Des Moines, right? West Des Moines, right? Yes. You said how many, Tim? Eleven cities that you've lived in. Wow. Anybody get, how many did you say, Harold? Ten? Wow, that's a lot too. That's interesting. How many of you would say it's two or less, like Luke? How many of you, like, I was born and raised somewhere, and that was it? Not many of you. Isn't that fascinating? We're a very transient society, aren't we? I was going to ask about jobs as well, but I didn't want to get into that. You know, how many different careers have you had? You know, some of, do you know, um, I was reading some research this week, and it says that uh, the average U.S. resident, moves more than 11 times in their lifetime. Now, we didn't talk about just moves, but if you bring that in, how many of you would say I'm probably close to that 11 moves in my lifetime? Yeah, I would, I would probably hit there pretty easily. Do you know, in contrast, the average number of moves for European citizens is only four. Isn't that fascinating? What is it about here in our culture that makes us so transient, that makes us just up and willing to move and, as opposed to our... European friends that just kind of don't move as much as we do. Why do you think that is? Geography. Geography. It's closer over there, right? I mean, and we make maybe bigger moves, a lot more space, lot more space to spread out here. Uh, what was that? Lack of contentment. Now, don't be getting, we call that meddling in the South, so don't be meddling now. Come on, that's just personal now. But I think you're right. I think we kind of always have this grass is greener mentality, don't we? My job will, I need to quit this job because that job will be better. Has that always worked out for us? Anybody ever made one of those moves and found out the grass was definitely not greener on the other side? I know I have. Yeah. What else? Why else might we be just so willing to up and move so much? Anybody else? Money. Money? Yeah, that happens. What we're kind of, oh, go west, young man. Right. Hadn't thought about that. You're exactly right. It is what our nation was founded on, exploring. We're never content. We've got to, I mean, let's get to Mars, right? Because we've never been there. We've got to go. It is fascinating. I was, as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about just even in ministry world, in churches. And, you know, years ago, it was very common for pastors to change churches every like two to four years. Can you think about that? I mean, imagine that. Just every two to four years, the pastor would up and, and leave. Now, new research shows that it's now between six and seven, kind of that greener pastures kind of thing. Now, don't worry. I'm not saying that because I have plans to move. You're stuck with me for a while. I'm not that easy to get rid of. 
But this G- July, I hit my 17th anniversary here at Ashworth. 17 years. And in that time, I've lived in two places. You know, thank you. I, it's, I feel like I've never lived anywhere as long as I've lived here. We lived the first 10 years in Waukee, and then we've lived in our ha- current house for seven years. This is it. I mean, this is like, and I'm planning for the next 17. So, you know, I'm not planning to go anywhere. This is amazing. So I've kind of got this mentality of settling down and, and sticking with this place. But when you think about the number of times we move, whether it's that new job that we start, that new city that we jump into, there's a lot of problems that come with that, right? I mean, when we begin to move and, and not really stay stable in, a, in any one place, when we're that way, things can be temporary. If we do it enough, we're more than willing to just be like, well, this didn't work. I'm moving here. And, you know, you just find yourself moving. Relationships are harder, to, I think, to, to develop. They can become more shallow. And really, no place can feel like home. That was kind of my story growing up. I grew up in, I was born in one town, moved when we were four to another town, moved when we were, when I was seven to another town, and moved when I was 16 to another town. And so no place, I know it sounds like a pastor's kid, doesn't it? Yeah, after my 10th grade year, that was kind of fun. It does explain a lot, doesn't it? It does. And, but it, no place for me ever felt like hometown. And so, and the places we leave behind, those with high turnover and lots of transit, find themselves with little stability and, you know, and challenges. There's an expression, you may be familiar with this, that describes that settling down. It's called what? Putting down roots. Putting down roots. But we have to admit, that doesn't sound too sexy, does it? Put down, what sounds sexier? Go west, young man, or set, put down roots? Go west, young man. We want to go to Mars, right? We want to figure out what the next thing is. I mean, and, and our culture kind of kind of gives us that as well. We, do you feel that? I feel that. It's like you cannot be content. You're always supposed to be moving. Everything is always supposed to be, you know, on the move, mobile, up and to the right. You're supposed to be achieving, moving up the ladder. And so when you contrast that with put down roots, well, now that's just, that sounds outdated and antiquated. What are you talking about? But time after time and story after story, we continue to hear the story of somebody chasing greener pastures or bigger and better, and it often leaves them, more often than not leaves them, disenchanted, unsatisfied, and still searching for significance. And so what we want to do over the next several weeks is kind of explore this idea of rooted. And if you're curious about what the established in 1971, no, that is not the year Amy was born, but it was uh, the year that Ashworth was started. Yeah, I was going to say me, but I thought it'd be funnier if I said you, right? You know, what does it mean to be rooted? Are we talking about staying here in West Des Moines or the Des Moines metro area? Not necessarily, but maybe. But we're wanting to look and see, is there wisdom behind this idea of planting some roots? Are we rooted? How rooted, even if we're not moving, are we rooted? Are we planting roots? Because I think we could even find that maybe even if we don't go anywhere, we still live some shallow lives without deep roots that have established us anywhere. And so as we look at that, we're going to talk about what does this mean? What are some practices and ideas that might be important in helping us establish roots and, and helping us get more connected? What's interesting, though, is if you begin to look at the Bible, this idea of roots and fruit and blooming and all these things, horticulture itself is a very common metaphor in the Bible used to talk about our lives and how we live. 
And of course, you know, if we're going to talk about being rooted, one of the very first things we have to talk about is where are we planting? Where are we planting? What is the ground, what is the soil that we're going to find ourselves being planted in? As I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking there are probably a lot of different options for us. Not, we're not talking geographically, but when we begin to think about what am I going to really base my life on? What am I going to put myself in that helps me grow? There's really a lot of different things we could pick from, aren't there? What are some things that you might think that we might find to plant ourselves in, to root ourselves in? A career, A career yep, absolutely. A church. A church, absolutely, yeah. Family, relationships, school. school. Yep. Anybody else? Community. What was that? Community. Community, yes. Yep. Could be a geographic place. That's exactly right. I was thinking it could be uh, recreation. We can, you know, become so committed to recreation. That's what we plant in. God help us. Politics. I've rediscovered that I don't watch network television very much. And this past week, my father-in-law was with us, and we had the TV on more than normal. I am so sick of political ads. Anybody else? I found myself talking back to the TV a lot. I've become one of those guys. It's really interesting. You know, all these things that we're talking about, community, career, family, education, you know, any of these things are not bad in and of themselves. None of them are evil that you'd look at and go, family is evil. The problem occurs is that when we take anything that might be good and we make it the ultimate, when we center our lives around those things, making idols out of them, and when we plant ourselves in them, what we do is we begin to put weight on these things that these things cannot carry. You know, family's a great thing. I love my family. I, you know, you guys know my crazy situation. We have seven children, five still in the home, five graduations this year. Praise God. We're so excited, you know. But my family, as much as I love them and as great as they are, they cannot carry the weight of my whole existence being found in them. It's good. It's great. But if I make them an idol, I think, and I assume that in them, I'm, they're going to be the ones that bring me peace, and they're going to bring me joy, and they're going to bring me fulfillment. What's going to happen? I'm going to destroy them in the process, right? I'm going to absolutely obliterate them because they can't stand up to it, and then I'm going to be left wanting and sitting around and going, what happened? You were supposed to be this for me. Why are you not? You know? Well, the Apostle Paul he wrote a lot, you know, most of our New Testament is what he wrote. And he was writing a letter to a church in a city called Colossae. And in our Bibles, we have it recorded. It's a letter that he wrote. It's called Colossians. Now, Paul had never been there before. And the church was started by somebody that, who Paul had led to faith, a guy named Epaphras. And this church, like all new churches, like all churches that have been around, they started having some issues. And so Paul, feeling like kind of the grandfather of the church, writes them this letter. And he wants to begin addressing some of the things. Now, this church, what they were, that they were questioning was the legitimacy of Jesus. That's what false teachers would come in and do. And so Paul decides to address this in this letter. And in his letter, he tells them a few times, and we'll get to this part in a second. He says, don't be deceived. We'll come back to that. But then he says this. He says, so then... Just as you received Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. That's a cool expression, isn't it? Rooted and built up in Jesus Christ. Now, if we were to ask the question, what are we supposed to be rooted in? If you went to Sunday school as a kid, there's always only one right answer, right, Tim? What's the right answer in Sunday school all the time? Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Jesus is always the right answer. He's always it. But have you ever stopped to question, what does that mean? You know, if we say, who are we supposed to be rooted in? And we say, Jesus. Yeah, we know that. It sounds great, but what does it mean? And when you begin to look at this expression that Paul uses, because he says rooted in Christ, that expression in Christ is a favorite of Paul's. He uses it over 50 times in his different letters. And when you begin to see that, you understand that there's a real significance and a weight behind what Paul is saying. When he says be rooted in Christ, when he says you are in Christ, what does that mean? Well, I think it means a lot more than we normally attribute to it. I think because what we want to do is we want to say, well, I'm in Christ when I go to church. And yeah, that may be a part of it, but that's not the fullness of it. Or you may say, well, I am in Christ. I'm rooted in Christ when I do good things. You know, I help somebody cross the street. That's in Christ. Sure, it's part of it, but it's not all of it. But a closer look at how Paul uses the expression shows us that Paul means so much more than just this idea of belonging to a club called church. There's a depth to it. There's a to it. Because Paul sees this idea of being in Christ, it's everything to him. It's everything. It is a union where he sees his own person, his own being bound up in the person and the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. I mean, just for an example, that's why Paul himself would say in the book of Romans, that letter that he wrote to the Christians in Rome, he would say, I am buried with Christ in baptism. There it is again. I'm buried with Christ. Within Christ, I'm in Christ. What does that mean? He literally identifies a time when he dies to himself and literally is raised to, not literally, metaphorically, is raised to walk and be and live in Christ. You see, many times we take what it means to be in Christ and we reduce it down to, do you believe the right things? In fact, for a long time, that was the standard for belonging in any Christian community was, do you have the correct doctrine? And I'm not downing correct doctrine. Doctrine is important. We should have correct doctrine. I think we can debate sometimes what is essential and what is secondary. I said, but, but seeing ourselves joined with Christ, how we live, how we speak, how we treat others to be the hands and feet of Christ in the world, we become, as Paul sees it, the embodiment of King Jesus in his kingdom on earth. That's what Paul is talking about. There's really no separation for Paul between who he is and who Jesus is in this world. How do I know? Because one of the things the Apostle Paul also says in his letter to, in Philippians, he says, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. He saw no separation between the work and the ministry of Jesus 
and how he was called to live that out. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that to be very challenging. I find that to be very difficult to embrace because there's so much about me I kind of like. There's so much about me that I really enjoy, and I'm afraid that if I go all in sometimes, is Jesus going to require me to lay that down? I'm not saying he does. I think that's sometimes a misconception we have. Sometimes we look at our lives and we think, oh, I can't die with Christ because he's going to ask me to do X, Y, or Z. He might, he might not, but we hold a little bit of ourselves back because we're worried about that. So we have to ask ourselves, do we see ourselves in Christ, rooted in Christ, the way the Apostle Paul talks about it? Is Jesus the soil that we're planting ourselves in, that we are surrounding ourselves with? And I think the bigger question isn't just that we give mental assent and go, yes, I am rooted in Christ, because the question is, is it evident in how we live, in what we pursue, in how we engage others, what we surround ourselves with, what we find ourselves listening to? And as I was thinking about this this week, I thought if there's ever been a time to see that what we choose to plant ourselves in matters, it is certainly now. Because what we discover is that the reason Paul would say he looks and lives like Christ is because he rooted himself in Christ. Because we begin to resemble that which we surround ourselves with, that which we root ourselves in, is that, that's what we become like. And you know what? The more we know Jesus, the more we time we spend with Jesus, the more we will look like Jesus. And this may be where some of the challenge is because we live in a time where who Jesus is is incredibly distorted. And we're going to, this year, we're going to spend some time talking about who is Jesus and how did he live and how do we look like him? Because we have to acknowledge that in the world we live, that sometimes Jesus is grossly misrepresented, grossly. And I think that's why surrounding the passage we read in Colossians, Paul makes a statement twice that becomes very significant. He warns twice about deception. So look at verse 4, which was right before what we just read in Colossians. He says this, he says, I tell you this, see that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. You see there, he's saying, look, there's arguments out here. There's people saying things and they sound good. They sound right even, but they still are deceptions. And then immediately after that passage in about being rooted in Christ, Paul says this. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, we should probably spend about half an hour just right there. What is he talking about? The philosophy that depends on human tradition. What is the philosophy that depends on the elemental spiritual forces of this world? 
You know what that is? It becomes power. It becomes control. It becomes you have to do what I say because I'm the one with the sword. Which if we compare that to what Jesus taught, there's clear distinctions where Jesus says, no, 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 no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. You see, we don't like that list because that seems weak and that seems out of control. And yet for some way, some reason, that's where we need to be. And Paul is saying, look, there's a lot of shiny new nickels over here, okay? There's a lot of shiny toys over here, and they look pretty, and they're sparkly. And you, as people who follow Jesus, you even are going to be tempted to go, wow. And Paul says, don't do that. Stand firm in the faith in Christ Jesus. Recognize the soil that you have been planted in. Be rooted in Jesus. Don't be deceived. Don't be misled. Don't take on these erroneous views of the truth. To be in Christ means that we need, we must have a level of discernment. We have to know when we are acting out of our Christ-likeness and when we're not. We have to know when we are acting out of looking like Jesus and when we're acting out of our own humanity, our own insecurity, our own depravity. And we also need to know who we're listening to and when they say they may represent Jesus, but do not. I mean, I don't know about you, but one of the things the ads on TV have taught me is, man, people love to say the name of Jesus. But if you were to pause, or excuse me, mute the television and just look at their face, do they look like Jesus? Seriously, give it, a, give it a whirl. Do you think this is what Jesus looked like? I call it the face test. When I see them, do they reflect even in just normal conversation? Do they reflect the face of Jesus? What do you imagine the face of Jesus looks like? Kindness, compassion, empathy, love, caring, concern. I mean, seriously. And when we talk about the need and necessity for us to be rooted, man, what does the world need now? Love and compassion and mercy and grace and caring and empathy. Man, we don't need any more people saying, I stand for Jesus. <laughs> you know what we need? <laughs> we need more people that are rooted in Jesus. And just like Paul was talking about, living the way that Jesus did, seeing our own lives as that inseparable union with Jesus, so that the words that we speak are just like the words that Jesus would speak. And the deeds that we do are just as compassionate and caring and loving as the deeds that Jesus would do. But we've got to be, be aware. We have to have this discernment. As I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, back in my banking days, it's been a long time, 
But I actually took in counterfeit money one time. I was a teller and took in fake bills. But fortunately, I caught it. I could tell immediately. I didn't need a machine to tell me. I, they handed it to me. I'm counting it. And I went, nope, that's not right. And of course, then we had the counterfeit pen. We run it on it. It's like, nope, that's not good. So we take it and we send it off to the U.S. Secret Service because that's what you do with counterfeit money. Yep, they want it for some reason. But do you know how I was able to detect the counterfeit? You've probably heard this before. You don't spend hours and hours looking at fake bills, touching fake bills. You know what you do? You spend hours and hours dealing with the real thing, the real deal. And then, because you are so familiar with what the real thing is, when the fake thing comes through, it sticks out like a sore thumb. It does. That applies to us in our relationship with Jesus as well. When we spend time with Jesus, when we know him as well as we know our spouse or our kids or the people around us, when somebody speaks to us or God forbid, when even that spirit comes out within us that is not Christ-like, guess what happens? We can immediately go, whoa, let me back that up because this is not where it needs to be. Now, one challenge here is when we talk about being rooted, <laughs> there's a difficulty. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. Growth takes time. Amy shared this with me. This is by an artist, Betty Dickinson. And uh, it's beautiful. And roots take time. It's a reminder that roots take time to grow and develop. But in our impatience, in our microwave world, in our just desire for everything now, 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 I mean, I, I'm, I'm one of these guys. I'll pull out my phone and I pull up a website and God forbid it take three seconds for that website to load. Let's go. Let's get it. We don't have time for patience. We don't have time for slow. We are culturally and spiritually ADD. Amy bought me a book recently. That's my love language, just so you know, books. And it was really good. It was by an Asian-American woman who uh, wrote about, it's called Our Unforming, De-Westernizing Our Spiritual Formation. It's a good book. I loved it. Um, but she talks in there about growth and transformation and really how, how do our roots grow. And in the book, she, she, throw, she shows three graphs. And these are not going to be unfamiliar to you. In fact, you're going to recognize them, most of them. But she says, you know, most of the time when we think about our spiritual growth and development, we think of it like this, up and to the right. We think that's how it's supposed to be. Just real quick poll. Anybody spiritual growth that way? Hmm, I didn't see that hand. I mean, and, but, but we think this way, don't we? And why wouldn't we? Because we, we tie into this in all other areas of our life. After all, if we have a business, isn't that the goal of every business? To grow, to go up and to the right. If that's what we want in our community, if that's what we want in our business, if that's what we want in our career, then why wouldn't we also adopt this as a spiritual goal as well? So what we do is we talk about this with other people and we say, oh, the spiritual life is a journey. But there's a problem there because a journey has a starting point and a destination, has steps to be taken. You know, you take step one, step two, step three. Again, how often does that imitate our real lives? Not very often. But because we value progress, production, perfection, 
and results, this is what we look for. Spiritual practices become things that we just do, to-do lists. Everything is measurable, or we think it should be. But there's a problem, as we pointed out. Life doesn't work this way, and our experience feels a little less like this. And this next one is how I used to describe it. Look at this next one. And we think, oh, well, that's how life is. I've used this many times to describe spiritual growth. It's messy. It's a tangled web of confusion. But do you know the problem with this one? It's still up and to the right thinking. It's still up and to the right. And I've been guilty of using this with people and understanding my own growth. But here's what the author of that book says. She makes this statement. She says, the drawback to both of these types of linear orientation is when things don't go as planned, when life turns messy and complicated, we lack the spiritual vocabulary and depth needed to navigate. Can I get an amen? amen. We do. And so she talks about how in most non-Western cultures around the world, they don't view it like this. They view it like this. Go to the next slide. There it is. Circular. Instead of seeing our spiritual growth as an assembly line of mass production, what it more looks like is the cyclical natural patterns of life. I mean, think for a moment. How does life function? In seasons, doesn't it? Who's excited about the winter season? Joe was telling me we may be in for six inches of snow Tuesday. Who's excited about that? Creation moves in seasons. The tides rise and fall. The solar system is cyclical in nature with the phases of the moon. Even our bodies and the way we were made circulate blood, don't they? When we shift how we see developing roots from something to be done with a start and an end date, we can even begin to see God more as a relationship, not as a tool to grow. You see, because God is not a destination to be reached, there is no point where our relationship with God will end. After all, how many of you have done something discipleship-related only to get to the end and think, okay, did that? Yeah. But also, have you gone through a season where you get to the end and you look back and you see how far you've come just through that season. Going through it, you didn't even know it was happening, did you? But if you stayed faithful, even in what you could do, didn't mean, well, I prayed every day for 30 minutes. No, some days I prayed and some days I couldn't and some days I you know, was mad at God and some days I loved God. And amazingly, months or years down the road, you can look back and you go, wow, Look at where I've come, and hasn't God been faithful? I mean, isn't that beautiful? And what we're talking about is just this idea of roots take time to grow. Are we willing to slow down? Are we willing to take time to stop shortcutting the process, to stop looking for artificial measures that would compensate for our unwillingness to be patient and do what is required to develop the root system we desperately need. See, I wonder sometimes as I was thinking about this this week, I wondered, what are we teaching our kids? I have kids, six-year-old. Isn't that great? Love it. And I think often, what am I teaching my kids? They see us so busy, little time for the important things. Sure, there's lots of activities, and there are things we tell them are important. 
even religious activity, but the spiritual life gets pushed to the back because we don't really have time for that. I want the up and to the right. I want God to be my to-do list, my, on my checklist. But then I think about that, and I think, how many of us want that in our marriages, in our relationships? So why would we think that that's an acceptable way to view our relationship with God? Do our ambitions, the cultural pressures of being a good parent, <laughs> that desire to be an Instagrammable family, keep our roots shallow? I don't know. What's interesting about roots, though, is often they're unseen, aren't they? Yeah, we see the occasional root pop up above ground, but most of the time it's unseen. Liz was talking this week about the tornado years ago that went through her, her hometown of Jefferson, Iowa. And she's just talking about how it was basically heading for her parents' house, and it just kind of skipped over, but you could see the damage, and there were trees that were uprooted. In fact, here's an image. It's not from Jefferson. I couldn't find a good image from there, but look at that. Often we may think we have the right root system. How do we find out when we do? <clears throat> Not in the way we want, is it? <laughs> we would prefer never to have to find out. But man, when the storms of life come, we really find out what our roots are. And on the other side of that too, I think we begin to realize just how important, not just our own root system is, but the root system of those around us. Because community becomes so important. It's much easier for that tree to be blown over in a tornado when it's sitting out there by itself, but you tie it together with a grove of trees. Yeah. None of them move. Yeah. And it's a reminder of just the power of community, and we'll dig into that in a few more weeks. The unseen nature of our roots, though, can make it easy for us to ignore, but are certainly something we need to pay attention to. So I ask, I just close this morning. Worship team, go ahead and come back. Where are you planted? What soil have you surrounded yourself with? It's an important question. In the prophecy of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, Jeremiah is writing and he tells the people of Judah, he says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the system. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Isn't that beautiful? Take a look at this next image. There's that tree planted by a stream. How are your roots this morning?